five, four, three. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Thinking Religion. I'm Thomas Whitley. And I'm Sam Harrelson. Thomas, I love your voice this week. Thanks. Yeah, I've got a, what a beer white voice this week. <laughs> beer, baby. <clears throat> a little bit sick. Went to the doctor and he was like, so you have a sore throat? And I was like, yeah. He's like, no, you don't have a sore throat. I was like, okay. He was like, you have a, it's your larynx. I was like, I don't care what it, like, it's, it's all it in hurts. the throat. Like, I want to make it better. <laughs> right. It's, it's oh. in that part. So, yeah. So you went to the doctor? Well, cause yeah. <clears throat> See, I'm coughing in the middle of the show. I was going to try to mute all that out. Um, yeah. Cause I thought it was like a sinus infection. And like, usually when I get, and I get these pretty regularly. So I was like, oh, I just need to get some antibiotics and knock it out. And I wanted some guy I've never been to before. Cause it's like spring break here. So I guess they're like on a really limited staff and <laughs> you say you had the third, third string from the bench. I guess so. Yeah. And he did not give me yeah, anyway, I'm not very happy. I'm a little bit better than I was, but obviously, obviously I'm still not a hundred percent. So you're like, I'm, I'm just here for the Z pack. Right. Exactly. Give my antibiotics. I'll move along. So, um, so yeah, that's where I am. Yeah. No, I've been sick too for like two weeks and I, I don't know what it is. Every and every year I think, yeah, and I'm like, um, okay, this is going to be the year where I don't get sick. And then the end of February comes and boom. Um, so yeah, you, you wake up and you're hacking along and yeah. it's terrible. Yeah, me, me and Hillary, right? Hillary was popping some throat lozenges last night during the day. Is that what she was popping? Yeah. I didn't know if she'd gotten into Marco's stash or. <laughs> right, yeah. A little X. <laughs> <laughs> well, all of my conspiracy, you know, I, I if for, for, I'm breaking the fourth wall and I know some people don't like that. I'm sorry, but for friends of the show and, and for listeners, you know that I like my conspiracy podcast and, and blogs. And uh, there's been a whole thing about Marco's pill popping at the debates. And, um, you know, he, he's clammy and sweaty and people think it's, it's either Adderall or some sort of barbiturate, you know, that's, that's kind of like an upper or something, but yeah, I thought, no, barbiturate's a downer. Yeah. Um, so just before we get into this, I uh, I made a big change in my life this week, Thomas. Oh yeah. So I got another Android phone. That's this right. The, yeah. Yeah. This is the five X, the Nexus five X. And when so when when civilians in the in the general public who see me in in the few minutes that I go outside every day, when they see the this phone they or any Nexus phone, typically they say is that an iPhone? And you say, no, it's an, it's an Android phone, but it's kind of like Google's developer phone. And the interest immediately goes away because no one really wants to deal with that. But, uh, this is a great device and I'm, I'm really, really enjoying using it here for the last day or so. Um, you know, and I, I always keep like an iOS device because the nature of my work with the marketing thing. So I'm always working on different apps and different websites and that kind of thing. We, you know, we sort of have to have, yeah. you know, a windows machine and a Mac machine and a Linux machine and this and that. Um, so I still have my iPhone that I'm using for like my business number, but um, this thing's fantastic. And it was 199 bucks, which is amazing to me uh, that, you know, in 2016, we can get devices like that, but it, it's, it's tied to Google's Fi network, yeah. which is yeah. their, yeah, which is their sort of computer, uh, competitor for uh, uh, carrier stuff like a like a Verizon or Sprint, and they're using T-Mobile and Sprint, and they've developed this really cool algorithm that automatically switches you from the T-Mobile network to the Sprint network or back and forth based on where you are. Or if you keep Wi-Fi on, if you go to like like today, I, I took you know uh, one of our cars in to get the oil changed. And the oil change place had free Wi-Fi, as they do in 2016. <laughs> and it automatically connects you to that network, but it connects you via Google's VPN, which is a virtual private network. So it's a much safer thing than just, like, if you're on your iPhone and you hop on the, mm -hmm. the tire, tire changing place Wi-Fi. Um, so it's it's cool. And um, and I, I pay, like, 30 bucks a month for that, whereas we were paying, you know, hundreds of dollars for Verizon, which is a, a sinful thing to say, uh, but um, I don't know. I'm, I'm my wife, uh, Mariana, said last night, she was like, I, I can tell that when you are forced to use iOS, whether it's Apple or an iPad, you your weird like control things come out and <laughs> and uh, it, it becomes 
sort of manifest in other things that you're doing? Because I can tell that you want to do something on your phone that you can't do with an iPhone. And I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but it's good that my wife knows me. Yeah, anyway. No, you just got to be a green bubble. I know. that's uh, So that's the stigma, right? You're a green bubble. So I texted you yesterday and I, and I texted a few of my close friends and said, okay, here's my quote personal number that only, you know, five people now have. And I'm a green bubble again. I apologize for that. But, you know, this is important to me and I really like using this service. And you were the only one that wrote back and said, oh, that's okay. That's cool. I don't discriminate you being a green bubble because every one of my <laughs> other close friends wrote back with, oh, God, we hate the green bubbles. And now, you know, when we text you, you're, you're going to be that. And it's so that's when I tell them to use Facebook Messenger or Snapchat or whatever. Yeah. Or any of the other hundred messaging services that we use on a daily basis. I don't do, have we talked about that with our listeners, how you and I on a daily basis go through at least six or seven. Yeah, I'm not sure. yeah we do. I mean, it just depends on kind of where we are when something comes up. I mean, and this is the, <clears throat> this is kind of how you see uh, where you can see the rise of messenger apps, right. Um, and really see what they could be in the future. Because uh, we're an Instagram, you see a post, you know, send it. And then a conversation starts in there and you snap some pictures within the Instagram private message thing and send those back and forth. And, you know, then you throw something up in a Twitter DM or, you know, Facebook Messenger. I don't know. We go through, I don't know how many um, on a daily basis. You know, sometimes it's text, email, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram. Um, not so, We're not using Slack that much these days. Uh, but yeah, we go and, I mean, kind of seamlessly, I would think. Yeah, yeah, it is. And the odd thing is like I'll, I'll reply like in a Twitter direct message and then we'll pick up the conversation over on Facebook messenger yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's not, you know, disjointed. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that goes back to this, this idea that this messaging space is still so in flux and things like I'm on Android, you're on iPhone and or iOS and mm -hmm. that creates kind of a barrier because now I'm a green bubble, but now in right. 2016, yeah, with our messaging apps, we have ways to get around that. And if, gosh, if Twitter would only come out with a direct a messaging, app, messaging app, I know I would use it all the time. Yeah. I mean, cause yeah, I mean, between Mariana and you and a couple of other friends, I mean, I use that a lot. And when I'm sitting at my desk, it's nice just to be able to pop that into tweet deck or the Twitter website or my phone um, or a tablet, but like text messaging, you know, it's, it still has that, that sort of cultural value in the United States. But I yeah. think we're, yeah, I think we're rapidly moving over to something like Facebook Messenger or well, yeah, Google, Google's well, working on something too, but we don't know yet. Well, text, mess text messaging is still very um, like phone centric, right? And we're, I mean, most people are not using phones as phones very often anymore. And so you kind of need a messaging app which, you know, Facebook and Twitter and these are that is device agnostic. And so, yes, I can get my iMessages. Actually, I can get all my text on my computer because, you know, they've got it set up that way to where all my text will come through on my Mac as well. So that's nice, I guess. And sometimes it's easier if it's kind of a long conversation to talk there uh, than on my phone. But it's still really tied to the phone, you know. Um <clears throat> So that's, yeah, that's, I see a lot of potential for messaging apps, as you've been saying for what a year now. That's yeah. I mean, messaging apps are, I mean, that's going to be our internet and in, in five right. to 10 I years. I mean, we, we, were, we were talking about this, right? The other day, kind of building experiences in the apps and um, like it would see, it seems like a no brainer for Instagram to put, you know, like a buy now button that people could, you know, uh, companies or whatever could drop on a post. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you see this great bag, right? This great leather good. We follow a lot of leather good people on Instagram. Um, some great leather good that you want. Like, yeah, I love that. That's a great deal. I'll buy that. You don't ever have to leave the app, right? Your All of your information is already uh, contained in your phone. So if you're on iOS or, you know, then you just touch ID pops up, put your thumbprint on it and you bought it. Right. I mean, well, and that's the same thing on Android. So, yeah. And, and that's what people in the United States don't get. It's it's. It, okay, so in 2006 or seven, I was at a marketing conference in Las Vegas or somewhere, and there was a speaker from 
Rakuten uh, LinkShare, which is Rakuten is is the large one of the largest uh, online or was at the time like like an Amazon in Japan, uh, and they they did a lot of uh, online transactions, but they sold furniture and groceries and you know a lot, a lot of random stuff. Um, but they bought this American company that did affiliate marketing, uh, which is now kind of like today I sent you an affiliate link for you know service, and I was like, hey, have you tried yeah. this before? All right. Uh, so at the time, this lady got up and and she was one of the executives, and she was talking to this American audience about how text messaging in Japan was intricately tied to um, basically affiliate marketing or, you know, marketing in general. And people were going into stores and they were buying couches on their phones rather than, okay, I'm going to go buy, I'm going to go to the store and buy this couch. They were just kind of using the stores as showcases and then saying, well, you know, that's cool, but I've got this other great deal on my phone from my friend who texted me this picture and said, use this QR code and you can get, you know, 50 bucks off this couch. And more and more and more people were doing that in Japan. And and I thought to myself, that's insane. And no one will ever do that in the United States. You know, we will never get to the point where we're buying things on our phone, you know, via text message, but, right. you know, in app or whatever, because this was the year before the iPhone came out. And then iPhone came out and everything sort of changed after that in terms of mobile commerce. But we're at that point now with messaging where the same thing is happening and, and we're seeing uh, especially in Asia with Vibe and WeChat and uh, uh, what's the other one? What's, I'm blanking now. Uh, we're seeing this incredible explosion of, of messaging apps where people are doing everything from talking to their favorite celebrities like we do on Twitter to ordering groceries to uh, interacting with their bank or to sending money to someone, you know, and, and yeah. we don't get that yet, but we're getting there. And, and Facebook Messenger is going to, going to rapidly change in the next year, and it's going to be based around that. And I don't, I don't know. All that to say. Yeah, it, it just makes sense, right? I mean, it's where it, the people are. So <clears throat> giving them a yeah, text messaging experience. Is, yeah, and, and text messaging rates are already falling with people that are 18 to 49. Um, and mobile companies know that, and that's another reason the Verizons and the Sprints of the world are... are looking for other ways to monetize because, you know, back in the day they could charge right. $40 for a megabyte of, you know, text messaging, uh, data. Sorry about the baby in the background. Um, it, you know, and now, now they can't do that as much, uh, because we're all using different services and the, the price of data is going down rapidly. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's huge. And especially when you think about places like Africa and places right. where, yeah, where you don't have ubiquitous Wi-Fi connection, like the ability to message and do the things that you're going to do, whether it's you know buying things or, or getting information uh, on a messaging app that uses uses considerably less data than something like a, a web browser on your phone mm-hmm. is really interesting, and uh, I think we're going to see a, a big change in 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 sort of the the world of global commerce here in the next few years. But yeah. that's my rant. Sorry. Well, we got to beat China first, right? Yeah. We're going to build a wall in yeah. China. In the, yeah. Um, so all that to say, did you watch the uh, debate last night? I watched the second half of the debate last night. I didn't catch you the think? first half. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, it was... It was interesting. I'm, I'm feeling like I'm not hearing much new these days. Right. Um, particularly in a, in, you know, we've had multiple two person debates now on the democratic side. Um, I don't know. You can see they're both getting a little bit more testy with each other. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there are still comments that both of them are making that it's like, ah, you just don't get it. Do you like, you don't really understand kind of what people are thinking on this. Um, also the simultaneous, I don't, I didn't mind the parts that were in Spanish, um, but the simultaneous Spanish and English um, was just not done very well because they were like at the same level. And like, if you're going to do that, if you can have a voiceover for a translation, then you should drop the levels of the other language. Right. Um, And so I think that was, uh, that was just not done very well, in my opinion. But that, that's really interesting. I, I picked up on that too. But I, I was thinking, and I, I should have written a blog post about this, as as you do. Um, I was thinking that isn't it fascinating 
in 2016 where we have a debate of two national candidates, you know, who aren't like some French party where we're broadcasting Spanish and English at the same time. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, it's not for Mexico. It's for the native, you know, folks here in the United States who speak Spanish as their primary language or, you know, heavily speak Spanish at home. But, um, also how, uh, when, when people look back on this period in 25, 30 years, 50 years, they're going to look back at things like that debate that are being simulcast in English and Spanish in the same way that we look back on early TV or black and white TV, you know, and say, yeah. oh gosh, that's, that's so quaint that, you know, <laughs> we had, you know, two languages going on at the same time and we didn't have the technology to say, okay, well, this household prefers Spanish or this household uh, prefers English and this household prefers Ukrainian or, you know, whatever. Right. Um, right. It's and so like we're going to broadcast in that thing, language. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Lots of Lelia. Yeah. So, so where everyone like, <laughs> so, right, so what you get there, which is different from where you get the kind of tongues thing later on, but what you get in Acts 2 is that um, everyone hears in their own language. So it's not that like, you know, Peter, whoever's preaching is preaching in all these different languages in Acts 2, but everyone hears it in their language. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a good, uh, a good analogy for the technology that you're talking about that, that I'm with you. I can't imagine we don't have in another 20 years or so. And I mean, it shouldn't take that long, but it probably will. Well, and, you know, if we're still watching TV, I, I think at a certain level, you know, especially with VR or virtual reality, we're, we're going to blend kind of this mobile experience. Like I'm holding my phone right now and doing something. We're going to blend this experience with what we consider TV, you know, so the, the rates of people who actually have television sets in their house and use them, you know, is going to continue to decline um, to the point where, you know, I don't know if you put on a visor or put in contacts or something, but that post-mobile experience uh, that a lot of people are working on now with with augmented reality and virtual reality mm-hmm. uh, is going to rapidly blend with that notion of uh, of you know television watching, right? So that right. everything is sort of customized to you. Yeah, why can't you just, for instance, pop up a hologram of the debate and it just has Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders speaking in Spanish? If that's what, yeah, right. If that's exactly. the language that you're in, like, there's no reason we sh- shouldn't be able to do that in a few years. So, yeah, um, and and the tech is, is rapidly coming on, coming online for that. Yeah, so I mean, I I think that'd be amazing. Of course, it will never happen in Donald Trump's America. But <laughs> all right, so <laughs> what you do like you expect? That? Did you like that? Uh, that was a great segue. But before we segue, I was going to say, did you think Hillary had a bad night or a good night last night at the debate? I don't think she had a good night. And, yeah, it was, so it was rough. It means, was rough. Yeah, I guess that's how it works. Um, yeah, it was It was pretty rough. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, you know, first losing Michigan and then that. So uh, Mariana got home from church late last night and she hadn't had dinner. So I went out to Zaxby's uh, to pick <laughs> pick up some food uh, and, and they can pay us later for that endorsement. Um, Zaxby's is a, a fine chicken fast food restaurant here in the southeast of the United States. And uh, I had to listen to part of the debate on my mobile phone as I was driving. Thank you, TuneIn Radio. And she sounded terrible. I mean, not not the screaming part. And I'm not trying to be chauvinistic or misogynist, but right. just her her tone. Like I didn't really pick up on it while I was watching the debate, but listening to it, I thought, wow, like uh, this is not going well for her. And and Bernie didn't sound much better, but. Bernie's got nothing to lose, you know? <laughs> right. But you, but no, that's, and that's part I was saying, like, you can kind of see that they're getting more irritated with one another because they're getting more and more kind of sarcastic, condescending toward each other. Um, honestly, I think Bernie is way worse than Hillary is. Um, I think well, he, the looks, the look she was giving him last night though. I mean, yeah. it was, she was throwing some shade as, as the young people say. <laughs> um, but I think, <laughs> I think overall in general, Bernie is much worse with this kind of condescending, you know, tone that he has. Um, but no, it's, it's starting to creep into what she, you know, her presentation as well. And I think they're both, man, they're both tired, right? They're both sick. They've both been sick for a couple of weeks. It's, it's like, let's just give them a little bit of time off. I mean, it's a grueling process, you know, I mean, they, you know, for a, what a nine o'clock debate, like they hardly have voice left that day. And, um, they're trying to be enthusiastic and energetic. And I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't understand how anybody like it's it's work. You know, it is definitely work what they're doing. So and tonight we get 
a, another Republican debate. <laughs> well, it reminds me of uh, the George W. Bush debate in 2004 with uh, John Kerry, where mm-hmm. he said, you know, being president is hard work. And he, just, he repeated right. that phrase like 20 times during the debate, and we all laughed at it. But yeah, I mean, gosh, I, I, I can't even fathom what they go through. But yeah, so tonight is another, what, the 13th? 14th Republican debate count now. <laughs> and uh, it's going to be interesting because I think this is Marco's last stand and it's Trump. Well, Cause we have, yeah, we have, um, you know, the super Tuesday part three or whatever. I mean, they don't have good names for the rest of these, but cause they try <laughs> to do super Tuesday part two for this past week. But um, yeah, I mean, on March 15th, Florida, we vote down here in Florida. So it's kind Florida, of Florida, Ohio, Florida, Missouri, right. <clears throat> Big I mean, day. those are all, Florida and Ohio both winner takes all, you know, winner take all. Um, so you've got Kasich and Rubio who both need to win those states. Uh, you know, their respective states doesn't look like certainly doesn't look like Rubio is going to win Florida. Um, big night. This is it. I mean, we'll see what Marco does. You know, I guess maybe at this point, all I can think is there. The hope is that he pulls a Chris Christie and like just takes Trump out with him when he goes down. He wants to watch the world burn. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be interesting. I, I wonder if if he's going to recant on some of the negativity because it, it seems like that's hurt him um, recently. Yeah. You know, with people like me who thought, okay, well, he's the sane, sort of level-headed choice, right? You know, maybe Kasich, but Kasich has some rough edges that we don't know about. But my friends in Ohio don't have all positive things to say about him. Well, I mean, honestly, like Kasich has done a fantastic job um, simply by, for people that didn't know him, he's, he's been able to just recreate himself on the national scene that like, if you followed him for a while, you're kind of like, this is interesting, right? It's not <laughs> right. how we had perceived <laughs> you before. Um, but yeah, kind of, you know, casting himself as like the smart, responsible guy who's just, I, you know, he's just not going to get into that. Uh, you know, the bickering and stuff. And it's like, wait, like, really? It's the same John Kasich that I'm thinking about? <laughs> yeah. yeah. He, so I think with Rubio, right? Homeland on Fox News. Yeah, with little Marco, right? That he is, yeah. um, the idea is that he's stooped like to his level, which just to Trump's level. And it, it just never, it never turns out well, right? I mean, how do they not know this? Um, and I think it was made all the worse by the fact that he looked like, I don't know, a 10 year old kid on Christmas morning when he finally had something land, right? When he finally had an insult land, like he could not have physically smiled any larger, right? He was like, this is what it feels like. Everybody's clapping, right? Everybody um, loves me. Right. right. And it was just like, Oh, Oh, you know I mean? what people right? They kind of, I, I, I don't, I don't necessarily like it, but within sports, right. People often say like, act like you've been there before. Um, but that's, you know, kind of the same here on this stage. Generally, you know, Trump is obviously the exception to all of our rules now. Uh, but generally, people want to want you to act like you've been there before, like you can handle it. And that is not how Marco has come across in the past couple of weeks. That's that's a great statement. And it's so true. You know, whether it's whether you're teaching, whether you're preaching, whether you're running for president. Act like you've been there before, <laughs> you know, it's like have, have some gravitas, but be willing to show that you're flexible and you can respond in real time to what's going on, but also that you have enough confidence in yourself to say, you know, this is not my first rodeo and I know what I'm doing. Yeah. And that's a, that's a hard thing. You know, I, I imagine, especially at this level, but you know, I talk to clients all the time who, uh, you know, something good happens or something bad happens and they respond in a poor way. And it's, it, it's the same reaction of, okay, don't respond negatively or don't respond to positively like that. Like you've got to, you've got to temper yourself. That's a, that's a great statement. Um, do you think, uh, do you think Trump, Trump's going to get any blowback from his comments of the last few <laughs> days about uh, a major world world religion that, that hates our country? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, um, so if you're not familiar uh, yeah. We're recording this on Thursday, March 10th. On Wednesday night, uh, March 9th, uh, Donald Trump did an interview with CNN's Anderson Cooper. Which was, um, which was basically an infomercial between their sort of, they, they did like a debate. Right. 
pre-show, which which I was watching, and then all of a sudden it's an hour long interview or yeah, thirty minute long interview with with Donald Trump with like twenty minutes of lead in material, and it felt like a like a Ross Perot 1992 infomercial yes. that he had yes. purchased from the and network. It, and it was that, and it was, and it led right into their debate after, you know, nine o'clock. Um, yeah. and it was, I mean, I'm, weird. I'm a big fan of Anderson Cooper, like in general one, I mean, just look at the guy. Okay. Um, like I want to look like him when I grow up, it won't happen, but yeah. Um, see, I should totally rock that. No, I can't, but yeah, I know with the, you know, you got the silver thing going <laughs> on. Um, right. Two, uh, his segment on uh, Depardieu, right? The French actor Depardieu on the plane. We won't go into it now, but like when he just got stuck in a giggle fit on air, like I loved that. I know you're not supposed to do it, but it was hilarious. And generally, I think he's a good reporter and asks good questions. He did not last night. Um, his question, I mean, they were just, it was, yeah, it was not kind of a hard hitting interview, which, you know, I guess Trump wouldn't have sat for an interview like that if it had been. But so he says, um, so Anderson Cooper asked him, uh, do you think that the world, Islam is at war with the West? And Trump's response is, I think Islam hates us. And he goes on to say, there's terrible, terrible hatred there and et cetera. And um, <clears throat> Cooper says, well, like, you know, is it kind of in Islam itself? And he said, "Why? Well, I I don't know. You have to figure that out." And he said, "You can get another Pulitzer if you figure that out." Figure oh, that right, out. yeah, yeah. And then he says, um, "And then he says, um, I know you like your Pulitzers." <laughs> what did he? How did he finish it? It was, um, yeah. Oh, but you know, it's just so, so complicated. Like you, you just can't tell who's who. It's very hard to define. It, it's, it's very, very hard, hard to define. separate because yeah. you know who's who. Yeah, because you don't know who's who. So you, you don't know who's who, right? Um. So yeah, I mean, uh, you know, immediately you're like wait, did he say Islam hates it? Like, like he knows Islam's like not a thing, right? That has this like, right? He's like anthropomorphized this abstraction. Um, like maybe you're like, okay, Islam, like Muslims can hate, I guess, because they're individual people. Christians can hate, but like Islam can't hate. Christianity can't hate, right? So it's like, okay, that's odd, right? But hey, you know, you can't question the Donald because he has, as he so eloquently told us the best words. Um, but no, I don't think he's going to get pushback on this. Um, in fact, what I think um, is going to happen, what I think what I think we're going to continue to see as we have seen throughout his campaign so far is we see more and more how many people agree with him and that the establishment wing of the Republican Party is mainly, it seems, upset with Donald Trump, not because of what he's saying, but because of how he's saying it. You think it's, you think it's that. So, so you have a post, uh, in all fairness, on marginalia uh, today that that talks about this, and you say, uh, "quote the statement that Islam hates us," which you have in quotes, with its essentializing simplicity and anthropomorphizing of an abstraction might be amusing if Trump did not appear to believe it. That is, as much as Trump appears to believe anything he says. And you go on to say how Republicans have been doing this myth-making uh, about Islam or, or Muslims, uh, particularly with things like ISIL or, or ISIS, and how that's now carrying over into the essential core of what we prescribed to be Islam itself, right? Yeah. Okay. So do you think that the rise of Trump or, or, or Trump's popularity in some areas, I mean, I would say some areas, but you know, he, he didn't, he's not winning everywhere, but he's winning in different locations that don't really match up if you look at the map, you know. So right. he's yeah. he's winning in New Hampshire and he's winning in South Carolina, uh, and he's winning here and there and in places that you know you you can look at the map where Cruz wins and you can make some clear distinctions about his demographic. Where you can look at Bernie's, you know, Sanders wins and say, okay, well he does well in the Rust Belt and Hillary doesn't. Um, but with Trump, he's winning in lots of different places. So do you think his support or the people who who are, you know part of the movement, as he calls it? Um, do you think that they have that kind of latent sort of 
not hostility, but I mean, maybe hostility, but um, that sort of latent nostalgia for something that never existed in terms of, you know, a, a good old days, white America, where we were all Christians and we could say the Pledge of Allegiance and we could pray to Jesus and we didn't let homos marry each other. And now that's gone because of Obama. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. that sort of, yeah. is that what you're saying? Like there's yeah, that sort of yeah, that's what thing I'm there. Saying. That's what okay. I'm saying. I, I think that for a lot of people, right, this kind of this guise of, you know, oh, we've got too much political, correct, political correctness is people are excited now that they can say the racist things that they've been thinking and saying to their buddies all along. And now Trump is saying it on a national stage and there is validation there. Right. Well, it's like the other night where uh, Trump was doing his press conference after the win and oh, amazing, a, a young white male reporter conference. stood up <laughs> and said, you know, do you find it troubling that some of the, the language you, you use makes people uncomfortable if they have children in their household? Or, you know, how, how do you reconcile running for president with using bad words, basically? And, right. and Trump responded with just an out of this world response of, oh, aren't you so politically correct? You've never, you know, used a bad word, have you? And mocking this reporter right. who is saying the same thing that lots of us are saying in, in that regard. Um, and he got away with it. Like there was no real blowback from that. And, no, no. you know, Christian men and women don't see any who, who support him evidently don't see any discordance with that because he's tapping into this other stream of, of frustration or, or whatever that, uh, you know, the world is changing, yeah. the United States is changing and we're not the same country we, we used to be. Right. Yeah. He's tapping into, I think a very real fear that's there. I think he's tapping into um, strands that have been allowed to be neglected for some time in both parties. Um, but the other thing, the thing I really think is that, so th this kind of, um, I think he had kind of a nice uh, example of it this morning um, when Rick Scott, governor of Florida, went on Morning Joe on MSNBC and they asked him three times, do you, do you agree or will you say that your friend Donald Trump is wrong because he has friends with Donald Trump? He said that, um, that Islam hates us. You know, do Muslims, do Muslims living in Florida hate America? And three times he dodged the question to say, well, you know, we're a great melting pot and, you know, we've got like great, Peter. <laughs> right. And it's like, no, no, no. And they were like, no, 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 no. And, so, and he just would not. And it was super uncomfortable and for him, I guess, uh, and super embarrassing. But then, so you're left to think, well, why, why is he not going to say that? There's, there are two options as I see them, right? One option is he agrees with Donald Trump. He thinks all Muslims essentially hate America. And the ones that don't are the very rare exception. And so that's one option. The other option is he doesn't believe that, but he thinks that he needs people to think that he believes that in order to get elected or to get reelected. Neither of those is good, right? Because you're in both of those, you're giving credence to uh, what I think is a very dangerous um, trend that we're seeing, particularly within the Republican Party. And I think we're this is kind of borne out in the microcosm that is a Donald Trump rally, right? And this is kind of where I kind of went to at the end of the piece. But if you see, right, this is what you're talking about, this ideal of like making America great again. Well, well, what, you know, when was America great in your mind? What did it look like? And, you know, you can't really nail Trump down on that, uh, but you can nail some of his followers down. But if you look at his rallies, you can see probably what that, what they think that looks like, right? It's white, it's cisgendered, it's conservative, it's Christian, or at least, you know, generally, um, <coughs> you know, they're identifying as Christians. Um, and they're not black, <coughs> excuse me, when I'm in a monologue, I can't mute my microphone. Um, right. They're not black, right? So black people are getting, um, thrown out of Trump rallies. You have a uh, Muslim, um, people that are getting pushed out of rallies. You have, um, excuse me, <coughs> this is horrible, horrible podcasting, but, um, so, you know, you have all this and then you have very real violence being inflicted on these people. And then you have Trump advocating for that violence. Yeah, it was right that they, you know, that beat that, that guy because what he was doing was really bad. Well, he was protesting, right? I mean, this is kind of one of the things that our, you know, country is supposedly founded on. Um, and so you have, you know, violence being, um, you know, uh, 
directed at and advocated by Donald Trump, people that are black, people that are Muslim, um, people that are disabled, um, homosexuals, right? And then you begin to see a lot of parallels. You begin to think, okay, so, well, the kind of talk of Adolf Hitler, Nazi Germany, like that's just way overblown. Everybody wants to, that's kind of the ultimate Trump card, no pun intended, um, when you compare somebody to Hitler. But when you look at the propaganda, right, it actually looks, a lot of it looks the same, right? And it's kind of this, these incremental steps um, to this idea that like, well, we could never get there. I mean, maybe we couldn't, but I don't really want to find out. Yeah. And, and, you know, not, I mean, not to make direct correlations with 1920s Germany, but we have a lot of economic, you know, instability we have. That in large parts of the country that hasn't been addressed for decades. Right. And And, I I think that's an important thing that we have to realize when we're talking about this, which is a similar situation to, you know, the kind of gap in between the world wars in Germany. Right. This kind of they've just been completely beaten down and it's out of that that this kind of nativism arises. Right. And, and we've seen this before in the United States, you know, particularly in, in the 1830s. Uh, we had a, a crash after the or 1840s. We had a crash after the uh, Jacksonians or the Jacksonian uh, sort of restructuring of the National Bank. And uh, after Jackson and his folk in the uh, Democrat Party led a, a number of reforms that were very good for some people, but very bad for other people, particularly in the Northeast. Um, and then we saw the same thing happen in, in the 1890s after uh, the crash of, of what we call the Gilded Age uh, here in the United States. And we had people like Williams Jennings uh, Bryan, who ran for president three times on the Democrat ticket. Um, you know, and, and he was kind of a, a firebrand, uh, you know, fundamentalist preacher and like kind of a, a modern day Huckabee or, uh, you know, 1890s version of Mike Huckabee. Um, so we see these trends of nativism where we lash out at the Catholics or we, we lash out at the Jews. We, we lash out at the others, uh, the Irish or the to, Japanese or the native American. Yeah, right? the, I mean, the list is long. Exactly. Exactly. Right? It's not like this is anything new in our country's history. Right. And that's, that's what I'm trying to say. So, you know, we do that and other countries have done this for you know, much longer. Uh, but we do that in order to sort of have that release valve, as as uh, Alex de Tocqueville said, about um, these nationalistic tendencies that we espouse. But then when things go bad, we get frustrated. And as a, a group, we say, OK, well, it's the Muslims fault. And Jews hate America or Islam hates America or the, the Irish hate America or, or Catholics hate America. Um, and we need to, we need to put them in a certain place or, or marginalize them in order to feel better about ourselves. You know, it, it's the same reason we, we, you know, as 10 year olds, we bully each other and we throw rocks at each other because we need that existential sort of ape like behavior of, of taking it out on the other in order to feel better about ourselves. And it goes to what we talked about to some degree in last week's show, right? Kind of, yeah, these, right, right. These, um, like identity, how identity works and how we have to constantly create it, recreate it and work to maintain it. And we see that going on here too with the nativism. Right. So, but before, you know, a NASCAR race or, or an NFL game, you, you have this, let's honor our troops and let's have the American flag and let's sing God bless America. And then let's do the pledge of allegiance. And then we'll have the national anthem and the presenting of colors when in reality it, it's a sports game, you know, and, and we used to not do that with baseball games and football games and NASCAR, well, maybe NASCAR races, but where we, we sang Dixie, I don't know. Um, you know, and, and now it, it's part of the accepted sort of culture of that. And we've built up this cult of, of uh, identity around these sort of modern day bread and circus sporting events in order for us to, get our our anxieties out but that's not working anymore and now we've got things like trump or bernie sanders on the other side you know you've talked about this a number of times about people saying well hillary's not a real progressive so um i'm going to support bernie because bernie's a real progressive and you know uh, whatever your take is on that and i'm not saying it's tapping into the same uh extremities as, as something like the trump campaign but 
there is some correlation there in in terms of self-identification and other identification. It's the same act of classification that's going on, right? So uh, on this question of Islam, I mean, I I know you would say as as a PhD in religion, as a doctor of religion, uh, we need more people like you in our culture who understand religion to help us figure out, okay, Islam does not hate the United States. You know, like any cognizant person knows that. But you're not getting a lot of airtime on CNN or Fox News or Russia Today or Al Jazeera, you know, whatever. No, some of my friends are, but I'm not. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So this idea of not public scholarship, but having an awareness of the religious landscape now and having an awareness of how things are changing you know, whether for the good or the bad, I mean, everything falls apart, everything changes constantly, and we can't cling to one ideal and, and hope to make that last forever, right? But yeah. how do we move past this alarmist response that we've, we as a country, and, you know, going back, you know, millennia, we, we as humans exhibit when we feel challenged or threatened? Does that make sense? Like, how do we yeah. say that religion doesn't hate us. We don't need a crusade or, you know, we don't need to go do, um, you know, we don't, we don't need a Mujahideen to rise up against this thing, or we don't need to go have, uh, you know, a purification of our temple. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, obviously I think that one of the most important things is like, you have to educate yourself on it, but you also have to listen to people that are educated on it. Um, right. People like me and you should listen to them by also paying them, <laughs> um, while we're at it, <clears throat> like you should pay your artists, you should pay your <laughs> experts, you should pay people for it's in the Torah. Yeah. You, you have to pay your mule, right? Yeah. So we are your mules. Um, <laughs> and as long as you pay us, as long as you pay us, we will be happy to be your mules. Um, but it, you know, it's kind, of it, Sorry. It, it's kind of fascinating that it, at this stage, like kind of this point in history where we are. Um, with as kind of important as everyone recognizes, I think that religion is that it's still kind of so undervalued. We've talked about this a lot on the show, right? Within higher ed and religion departments getting cut. I mean, here and in Europe, we've talked about that. Um, so there's all that the kind of push for STEM, which is you know fine, I guess, but also pretty a fairly unbalanced approach, I think, to how um, to ideas about how we can actually you know beat other people. Um, as it were, which apparently is like a thing we're supposed to do because we're Americans. We're supposed to beat everybody. I don't know. Um, it's kind of like, like, it's kind of elementary, like you were saying earlier, right? Kind of like we're the schoolyard bully. Um, but I think it's important because, you know, for all the flack that Graham Woods really, you know, 10,000 word piece and the Atlantic last year, the year before, I think it was last year, early last year, um, got right. What ISIS really wants uh, one of the things that his piece gets right, I mean, I think there are things that he doesn't get right, but one of the things that he does get right is he kind of looks at um, the history of, you know, like looks in, like learns about Islam, right? You know, learns about Wahhabism and learns kind of the connection with the rise of the Islamic State with Wahhabism, right? You, you can't talk about the Islamic State without talking about Wahhabism, but I mean, most people in this country have never heard of it. So like that's necessary, right? Understanding what are kind of these purported, I mean, you know, purported and real differences between, you know, Sunni, Shia, um, Sufi, Islam. I think that's extremely important um, because, I mean, you just have to understand where other people are coming from, right? Even, I mean, even in kind of the most cynical sense, um, it's going to give you an upper hand, right? If that's all you're looking for. Um, but also, right, there's a reason, for instance, that Donald Trump, says things like, I love the poorly educated, right? There's a reason he's winning among those without a college degree and he's losing among those with a college degree, right? There are certain things that education does. Uh, One of the things is it helps you not be so ignorant about people that aren't like you and kind of realize like, oh, hey, like they're a human too. And we might disagree on a couple of things, but largely like we're kind of trying to do the same thing, right? We're trying to make it day to day. We're trying to whatever, make friends. We're trying to be accepted, we're trying to do the things we enjoy. We got to go to work. Sometimes we like it. Sometimes we don't. Right? Um, you're largely kind of the same. You know, pretty similar. Right? There's a there's somewhat of a similarity in our human experience in that regard. 
Um, and I think learning that is important, not just learning like the five pillars or something. That's fine. Um, but, you know, obviously getting to know people that aren't like you. But I also think it's important. I mean, one of the things that I think I offer and people like me that are you know, experts in religion offer um, is a more kind of theoretically informed approach as well. Right. Because it's not just I think Donald Trump that's wrong about Islam. I think President Obama is wrong about Islam. And I've written about this a number of times as well. Um, you know, the, the idea that. Right. Because just as wrong as Trump is and saying Islam hates America, I think. Obama is wrong in saying Islam is a religion of peace, not because most Muslims aren't peaceful, but because there is no such thing as Islam, right? There are competing uh, definitions. There, there, there are groups that are competing for the claim or the title of like, you know, true, authentic Islam, All right? Just like in Christianity, just like in Judaism. Um, and I think we have to recognize that that's going on. Um, and it does no one any good, particularly outsiders and particularly world leaders, I think, um, to just kind of come in and start making essentializing claims about what a religion is or is not. Right. I mean, saying that ISIS is not Islamic does not make them stop capturing people, does not make them stop killing people, does not make them stop planning attacks uh, often mostly on Muslims, uh, but sometimes on Westerners as well, you know, non-Muslim Westerners, um, does not make them stop destroying ancient heritage sites in Iraq and Syria and Libya, right? All it does is it they say, okay, you don't think we are, but we know that we are. And so everybody else is wrong, right? And it just adds to the persecution complex that they have that, by the way, a lot of Christians have as well, right? Um, and it just strengthens their resolve, right? This is what we know from a sociological standpoint, that the groups with tighter boundaries have a much stronger, much stronger social cohesion and often grow much quicker than, right? This is kind of the fundamental problem with moderates and liberals in this country is we're like, well, let's talk about the nuance, which I think is insanely important. Right. I mean, I wrote a piece about Pope Francis and the death of nuance. I think nuance is is absolutely important. But this is what you lose, right, in the moderate liberal world is you're like, well, let's talk about this, let's talk about that factor. And I think that's all important. But when somebody else comes along and says, No, or, you know, it's my way or the highway, right? You either pray this prayer or you're going to hell. Um, just kind of from a persuasive rhetorical standpoint, that has a lot more impact. Yeah, that's good. So uh, how do you think that the, the rapidly changing, well, not rapidly, but, but the, the changing nature of things like Islam or Islams <laughs> or Christianities or Christianity uh, in, in terms of <clears throat> becoming something that was once dominated so heavily by Northern Europe and or Europe and North America, but now South America and Africa and Southeast Asia really having more influence in those perceptions of, of world religions. How, how do you think that's going to change? Or, or do you? I mean, it, you know, we focus on the Middle East and we call it the Middle East out of right. this colonialistic idea of, right? And then, and then we try to call it the Near East, which is just as colonial. Just as like bad, right? As opposed to the Far East, the, you know, the Oriental. <laughs> the, the Oriental. Orient. Right. Oriental. So I, I love and yeah. study Dura Europas and everything is, you know, everything I read until 1995, 1997 is, you know, Oriental structure and the Oriental right. depictions of this and the Byzantine depiction of this. Um how do you think that's going to change so, things here in terms of our politics? So I think it's I think it's going to change things. I think it's going to be slow because I think that, um, as all often happens, right there is people in groups try to hold on to um, power longer than they can, uh, or long, or, you know, as long as possible. Um, we are very very close in this country to no longer to being a majority minority country, right? Where there is, um, where white people don't make up the majority anymore. Um, and I think that obviously threatens a lot of people. I think having a, you know, a, a black president threatens a lot of people. Um, but I think it's going to be a, sl a really slow change. And we see this partially in kind of what's going on in the Catholic church right now, right? Where um, the kind of African bishops have a fair amount of say um, and they tend to be even more conservative than, you know, the Vatican and, and, um, some, some other 
definitely more conservative than our American bishops tend to be, but even more than, you know, um, kind of Western Southern European bishops as well. And, um, cardinals and things like that and so they have more say and kind of as a block when they can when they're able to kind of pull that together we've seen them affect some minimal change but it's still an uphill battle um and i think it's going to continue be to be for a while because um right i mean the white man still wants power <laughs> like all right you don't you don't want to give up power once you've had it um and so i think that i think we're seeing that um in our interaction with the world Right. We're kind of largely ignoring Africa and, you know, the, the Southern Hemisphere as a whole, really, it, with the exception of what we call East Asia. Right. China and Japan uh, and the Koreas um, we're typically ignoring the entire Southern Hemisphere. Right. It's the people on top, or at least what we've classified as the top. <coughs> um, and it's the people that we've classified as white. Yeah. And the, the I just love that scene from the West Wing where they have the. Uh, cartographers union for social justice oh, or yeah, something. It's a, oh, it's a great scene, isn't it? <laughs> and and they talk about the Mercator projection that we all use, uh, especially in schools. When you walk into a school and you see the, the huge map and everything's drawn in a flat situation. So Greenland is just as large as Africa, right, which is insane, <laughs> insane. <laughs> or, you know, Australia is much larger than it actually is. Um, you know, Madagascar is actually the size of Greenland, but Greenland looks like it's, you know, this huge territory. Uh, and everything north gets exaggerated and everything far south gets exaggerated, but there's not as much far south that we want to hold down really, you know, like Tierra de Fuego, you know, it's, it's right, you know, whatever. So, um, you know, just how we think about the earth, you know, and, and us being in the north and on top and the people in the south, you know, whether it's United States or, um, whether it's it's on a on a global situation, I think that's fascinating to ponder, and we're going to see such a, a incredible change here in the next century of what Christianities mean and what what Islam's mean and, and what nativist religions mean, and um, it's going to be fascinating to to see how that plays out into our own politics and it, and whether we take that route that Trump is pushing or whether we take that route that. Uh, you know, we we try to pretend like we're moving towards in, in our progressive ideas. Well, I think I think, too, I mean, you can't talk about all of this without talking about the category of religion. Right. Um, <clears throat> and so Tomoko Masazawa has a fantastic book called The Invention of World Religions. Um, and right. This idea that when we created this category of world religion, it Christianity is the quintessential religion. Right. So the West gets to define what counts as religion. And so we look at other people and we say, well, you know, oh, we'll say that's their sacred text. Even though, say, like half the people can't read it and don't think it's important, right, because they're not allowed to read and study the Vedas, for instance. Um, but we're going to say, oh, well, Christianity, we have a Bible. They've got to have a sacred text. So the Vedas are their sacred text, you know, also helps that the the Brahmins, the kind of elite class are the ones that we're interested in talking to as the West. Right. And they're the ones that get to say, like, oh, here's what Hinduism is. It's not the stuff that kind of those, you know, people down the ladder, social ladder, so to speak, are doing. That's not real Hinduism. Right. And so, it, it, this, I mean, this kind of fascinating uh, study that she does. And uh, Jason Joseph, Josephson has another has a great book, too, called uh, The Invention of Religion in Japan, which does a similar thing. Kind of talking about where there's no there's no category religion in Japan until like we as the West kind of bring it to them. Uh, it's kind of fascinating. Right. So you, there's. Yeah. So anyway, um. <clears throat> So I think you can't talk about that and kind of our relationship with the world uh, without thinking about that too, right? The way that we have defined religion and what gets to count as religion and the way that we've decided, say, Christianity, Judaism, and kind of Islam, right? People of the book, we'll go that way. So we're cool. And increasingly, Islam is getting pushed out of that, right? And so we we no longer talk about Christian values, but we tend to talk about Judeo-Christian values, right? But it looks exactly the same as kind of the you know, quote unquote, Christian values that you were espousing before, you just added Judeo to kind of act like Jews and Christians are in this together. Right. So, you know, so I I think it's, I think that has a lot to do too with how we view the world and how we interact with the world. Right. And this is super important, I think, from a foreign policy standpoint and from a domestic policy standpoint, Um, 
but how do you view the other? And, and particularly, how are you going about kind of classifying and categorizing the other, right? Because they need not necessarily be others, right? I mean, so in my class, for instance, one of the things I like to do is read Dr. Seuss's The Sneetches. It's this kind of <laughs> yeah. great, it's right. this great um, example of um, kind of classification at work, but, but it's not just that difference exists, right? Because difference exists, right? We can talk about that. <clears throat> but instead, it's how do you make that difference meaningful? Right. So it's completely arbitrary that the star bellied beaches, the star bellied sneeches are more important than the non star bellied sneeches. Completely arbitrary, right? Well, to us, right. Right. But it, right. But, but the thing is, is that they've made that difference a meaningful difference, right? It's the same thing, right? It's completely arbitrary, the difference between me and you, right? But I could say, well, you know, I'm better because a whole number of reasons. Well, I have a PhD and you don't. You know, we want to talk about your master's or whatever. We'll just talk about right. Um, or, uh, well, you know, I, I'm wearing shorts today and you're wearing pants, so I'm better, right? I mean, just completely arbitrary things, right? And this is what we, what you begin to realize when you start kind of seeing this and seeing these acts of classification, uh, particularly with regard to what's you know understood as religion, is that all of these differences are completely arbitrary. Right? Why does one group get to count as Christian and another group not? Particularly when we have predecessors that identified as Christian who do not view things the way that, say, like evangelical Christians in America today view things. But evangelical Christians in America today would say, well, you weren't really Christian. Well, why not? I mean, like, you know, he was Jesus's disciple and he like said this or, you know, did not think that Jesus was the Messiah. Right. If we read um, or, you know say, you know, kind of Christology or whatever, look at Mark and the Christology and Mark versus the Christology and John, right? Well, it's Mark. Mark didn't get to count as a Christian because, you know, some, you know, some evangelical 2000 years later has a different Christology. So, right. You, so you begin to see that all these classifications are completely arbitrary and, and, and it's us that supplies the meaning for them. And in, in so doing, uh, we, we actively create the world, right? And this is, I think it's something great that we get from, right? We talked about this before, right? French sociology, Pierre Bourdieu, Michel Foucault. Um, but like what us engaging in this act, these acts of naming, uh, as Bourdieu talks about, and these acts of classification, like how that is us actively creating the world, right? So, so now we have such things as Christians and Muslims, right? Because we have created the world to be that way. Yeah. And, th- and then the, I think that's the fascinating part of all that is it's nothing new, you know, and, and when Christianity was becoming, you know, what we consider Christianity, we had these same, we, we would have had these same conversations about, you know, the, the, the crazy Gnostics down in Egypt and, the, you know, or, you know, the, the Arians or the Nestorians or, oh, the, right. you know, any number of, you know, thousands of quote unquote heretics in the early church. Yeah, right. Absolutely. So the, the Right. So, and we went through two, 300 years of that same thing with Islam, you know, and still, you know, you have the Sunni and the Shia and, and Wahhabi, and you have these variants that, you know, would claim to be true Islam, you know, but the other side would disagree. And the same thing with, you know, Hinduism down to Shintoism, you know, like there's such a, a wide variety of, of experiences and, um, classifications and for the most part, each one of those wants to claim that they have the right way to do it. I mean, you know, Buddhism, you know, when people say, oh, I love Buddhism. And it's like, well, which Buddhism do you love? Because there's a lot of different right. Buddhisms. And <laughs> if you're going to love one, like you got to realize it's it's like Christianity. You know, are, are you a snake handling, you know, person in, in the backwoods of Appalachia? Or are you a, uh, you know, a Catholic in, in New York City? Like, where's your, what's your identification of, of being a Christian there? Um, and And you know, going back to the core of all these religions, whether it's Zoroastrianism or, or, you know, what we see the Assyrians doing in the, in the ninth century BC, um, there's this constant need, as you say, for identification, which creates the structure that we have. So, I mean, that's, that's what Trump is doing. He's playing into that. And people exactly. say Trump is dumb and <clears throat> Trump is an idiot, whatever. I think Trump is brilliant yeah. you know, on one level. I mean, uh, right, 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 right. I don't mean complimentary, <laughs> right? You know, but but he's tapping into this. He's tapping into this need for identification and classification and, and barriers, and doing it in such a way 
that it's subtle, but subtle as the Lord, you know, and, and it's, it's a very interesting, it, it resonates uh, and it allows people, right. So make America great again. You don't need specifics because it allows people to project their own specifics. Exactly. Exactly. So Jesus is Lord. Great. What does that mean? Right. Well, right. that means this and this and this. No, don't, don't give me that. Don't give me any doctrine. Just, I want to say Jesus is Lord. And that's what I think. So same thing with Trump, you know, let's make a great uh, America great again, or my, my, Stakes are great, or my water's great, my magazine's great, my family's great, my words are great. I'm the greatest thing that's going to happen to evangelicals. He's allowing for that kind of open participation and and boundary forming that's creating this or tapping into this uh, very real psychological thing that happens in our our eight yeah. brains. And in, and in that way, he is kind of the quintessential politician. Yes. Right. Exactly. I mean, and and not in like a negative way. I don't think all politicians are bad. I don't think politics is bad. Uh, I also understand politics in a broader sense too, and then kind of just our current political system. But what kind of when you get down to it, right? All religion is politics in that way, right? And it's kind of the political acts of of naming, classification, grouping, right? Us versus them, right? Um, this is why this is why Trump said, "I think Islam hates us." Right. Because because then what that does is that allows you to kind of draw in and connect with him. Right. This is why right? it was so great. Everybody else is um, saying, hey, you know, America is, is angry. Americans are angry. And Donald Trump says, I am angry. You know, so, yeah, in that regard, I mean, he is, I think, uh, kind of a brilliant uh, political actor. Yeah. I mean, and Trump saying, you know, people, uh, Islam hates us isn't Islam hates Hillary's America or Bernie's America or, or right. Rubio's no. America. It's, it's, it's us and our movement. Like Islam doesn't like true us. True America. Right. 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 And, and, and you can see the true America if you go to his rally. That's fantastic. Right? Because, because we're not going to let these, these uh, others, these outsiders come in. We solved a lot of problems today, Thomas. We did. This was, that was good. That was good. We'll do it again next week. Let's, let's try. I'd love to. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Thomas Whitley. You can find Sam on Twitter at Sam Harrelson. That's where all the amazing stuff goes down throughout the week. So you definitely want to follow us there. Um, and you can find more great podcasts at thinking.fm.